Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your health care. Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Today's topic is the diagnosis that frustrates more physicians than any medical condition I know. Why? Because there's no clear-cut testing that gives a diagnosis. Doctors hate that. And so, unfortunately for those patients suffering with chronic fatigue syndrome, they've been labeled hypochondriacs, malingerers, or even worse. My guest today is from across the Atlantic. I Tell my listeners, I will go anywhere and reach out to any doctor that I think can bring super important information to them. So today's guest actually practices in Great Britain in both the private and public national health service. She is a family practitioner with extensive background in environmental and ecological medicine. She has written several books focusing on natural ways to treat illness. One of my favorites is Chronic Fatigue Syndrome and Myalgic Encephalitis with the subtext, it's the mitochondria, not hypochondria, and you'll find out why that's so important. So it's with great pleasure I welcome Dr. Sarah Myhill to the podcast. Thank you for that very kind uh, introduction, Dean. You're welcome. And I love that British accent. I mean, that's already going to up our ratings, I'm sure. Um, Okay, let's dive in. And, you know, one of the first things you talk about, and I do find so interesting, why is chronic fatigue syndrome, as you quote, the disease with a thousand names? Well, chronic fatigue syndrome, what you have to remember is that that is not a diagnosis. It is a clinical picture. Now, a diagnosis infers a cause. So, for example, if you had anybody who got pain, you said, oh, you've got chronic pain syndrome. Yes, but we want to know if that pain is due to a broken leg, a cut in the skin, mm-hmm. an infection by a microbe, an allergic reaction to something, and so on. So chronic fatigue syndrome is just a dustbin area where people tend to get put because the doctors looking at that patient are so intellectually idle, they cannot be bothered to work out what's going on here, what the cause is. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. That's like I said in the introduction. I mean, I, I'm sure you get the same thing in Britain. You know, I've been treating chronic fatigue patients for about 10 years now, and I'll tell my story a little bit after. But so many patients have seen multiple doctors who are not that interested. I knew a doctor once, a very famous one here in New York. He said, I won't even see patients that have fatigue as their chief complaint. <laughs> so that already mm-hmm. tells you something. But what do you think about the names, whatever, chronic Epstein-Barr syndrome? You use the term myalgic encephalitis. Here in the United States, actually, the, the coding actually changed to systemic exertion intolerance, or SEID. Do they really mean anything? Or again, as you're saying, they're no. just a basket diagnosis. Well, no, it's not a diagnosis. It's a clinical picture. It's a clinical picture. Now, there are two aspects to chronic fatigue syndrome and ME. Now, fatigue is the symptom we have when we do not have sufficient energy to spend on what we have to do. It's actually a very important symptom. And an analogy I use all the time comes from Charles Dickens, Mr. McCorber, David Copperfield, and he says, 
income 20 shillings, you know, outgoing 21 shillings, result misery. You know, income 20 mm. shillings, outgoing 19 shillings, result happiness. I love now, that Charles Dickens our, reference. <laughs> Go our, ahead. our bodies can generate so much energy in a day. Now, if we spend more of that energy that we generate, then we die. Why? Because the heart runs out of energy, the brain runs out of energy, our internal organs run out of energy. So the brain cannot allow us to spend more energy than we can generate. And in order to stop us spending more energy than we can generate, it gives us very nasty symptoms. Symptoms like fatigue, muscle pain, foggy brain, you know, procrastination, feeling stressed, feeling anxious, feeling depressed. Those are all symptoms that stop us spending energy and prevent us from overspending and therefore dying. So chronic fatigue syndrome is all about energy generation mechanisms and then how we spend that energy and the symptom marks the gap between the two. Oh, you gave now, me the per- ME is different. Yeah. Oh, ME, oh, okay. yes, there is chronic fatigue, but in ME, there is also inflammation. And where there is inflammation, first of all, we get lots of nasty symptoms like pain, heat, swelling, loss of function. And where there's inflammation, the immune system is busy. Now, the immune system uses an enormous amount of energy. And if your immune system is busy with inflammation, then that will kick a hole in the energy bucket and, of course, will present with symptoms of fatigue. Now, that clinical distinction is very important because it determines how we go about treating that patient. So I want to know if that patient purely has symptoms of the energy gap narrowing, i.e. chronic fatigue, foggy brain, muscle pain, or if they have energy of inflammation. And inflammation can cause any symptom in the body. And if you have a chronic infection, then that is going to present with inflammation. So if you have chronic Epstein-Barr syndrome, if you have Lyme disease, if you have mycoplasma, if you have chronic fungal infections, then you are going to get swollen lymph nodes, feeling malaise, i.e. that ill feeling that comes with infection, fever maybe, and you know, all, all the symptoms of being ill, of having a flu-like illness. That, you know, this is a great, or the immune yeah. system may be activated because of allergy. And mm. allergy is the great mimic. It can produce any symptom. Th- these are great. So it's so important you know, early on in seeing patients with chronic fatigue and patients with ME to look very carefully at the symptoms. Do not symptom suppress with medication, which is what the doctors do. And that allows you to analyze the situation and give guidance as to where you go next for the relevant investigations. That is terrific. I mean, that is really an extremely important point. I, I sort of intuitively was doing this with my patients, but you spell it out so clearly, and it leads me perfectly into the next question I wanted to ask you. You know, as I was starting to say, Dr. Mal, I've been practicing 25 years. In the last 10 years, really seeing a lot of chronic fatigue patients and some fibromyalgia. And I remember when I first started to see these patients, I was overwhelmed. They were so sick. Their lives were falling apart. I was desperately looking for a medical resource, a book that would give me a guide to treat these patients. And I truly, I found it in your book. And I wonder if you can explain to me and the listeners, how did you come up with it? It was just what you started to say before too, your energy delivery approach for treating CFS. And I love the analogy where you did with the car, you know, the engine, Mm. the fuel. Again, so these are the patients that have I guess what you would say, energy deprivation. Could you explain that to the listeners? So yes. they... if, if somebody comes to me and they are abnormally tired, now that 
definition varies, I have to say, from patient to patient. Right. And for one of my patients, their definition of being abnormally tired was that they ran their marathons in two hours 40 and they were used to doing them in two hours 20. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, we, this is a spectrum that we are all on because guess what? We would all love to have more energy. Sure. You know, energy is like money. It's great fun spending it and it's jolly hard work earning it. Yes. So my job with all my patients, whether they've got chronic fatigue or whatever, is to try to analyze the mechanisms of energy generation. Now, I speak to ordinary people all the time and the fantastically useful analogy is the car analogy. And if your car is going to go well, you've got to have the right fuel in the tank. You know, there's no good putting petrol in your diesel engine. The car just ain't going to go. And that pertains to diet and to gut function. And I probably talk more about diet and gut function than all other subjects put together. We then have to have the mitochondrial engine. And what mitochondria are, are their little cell organelles that are universal to all living cells in the whole of nature. And what mitochondria do is they take fuel, they burn it in the presence of oxygen to generate energy. And that energy comes out in the form of ATP, the energy molecule. And I think of ATP as like money. And with ATP, you can buy any job in the body. You can conduct a nerve, you can contract a muscle, you can make a hormone, you can detox a chemical, and so on and so forth. And the mitochondrial engine, this became my special area of interest and I worked very closely with the incredible Dr. John McLaren Howard, who is the most brilliant biochemist. And I said to John in the, in the 1990s, I think chronic fatigue syndrome patients have a problem with their mitochondria. Can you do some tests for me? Now, at that time, I really didn't know what a difficult question I was asking. Oh, yes. Yeah, that, was, that was a question I was going to ask in a few minutes. Yeah, But John being being such a clever guy, understood. And he developed a test of mitochondrial function. And the joy of that test is for those very sick patients, it gives us an objective measure of their fatigability. If somebody's got very poor mitochondrial function, then they are going to be fatigued. You know, Dr. Mai, I want to stop uh, you right here for one second, because you say so many important things, so sometimes I will interrupt. But this, again, reading your book, and I know your emphasis on mitochondria, Dr. Jacob Teitelbaum, who's also here in the United States, has been a long advocate of this being a huge problem in chronic fatigue. And remember I said earlier in the introduction, you know, God, we're so frustrated we don't have a test. Now, I saw in your book about the ATP profile test. I'm not sure we can do this in the United States. Is that available only in Britain? And can you explain that a little bit? Because, and one of the things, too, for the listeners, I always tell my patients also, mitochondrial function and understanding about ATP probably takes them back to their middle school biology. And a lot of them didn't do so well in middle school biology. And even myself now as a doctor, I look back and say, gosh, I just was memorizing things. Now I really understand that. So mm -hmm. the ATP profile test, which I know you mentioned in the book, mm -hmm. is that something that you're able to use in Britain? And can you explain a little bit how you use that to help guide in treating a patient? Well, it's a test. The ATP profile is a measure of mitochondrial function. Now, technically, it is a very difficult test to do. And I say we are so fortunate to have uh, John McLaren Howard who has perfected this test. When he does this test on patient, for, for my patients, he does it in quadruplicate. He, he does it four times over wow. to make sure he gets a consistent result every time. Now, there are various commercial laboratories that have tried to copy this test 
and have struggled with the intricacies of the test. There is a lab in Germany that is starting to do this test. But my guess is that to do it commercially would be almost prohibitively expensive because it is a technically difficult test to do. Is it so personal? Is that why it's so difficult based on the patient's blood or is it just the reagents? Why why is it so, as far as you can tell, so difficult? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a biochemist and I don't know. I just know from various laboratories who have tried to reproduce this test Mm. and been unable to uh, get the same consistent results that it is a technically difficult test to do. But it is not essential to have that test in order to treat your mitochondria. Because I have now done so many of these tests, I've done nearly a 1,000 myself, and other docs in this country have done equally uh, high numbers of this test. We now know what the common lesions are and how we can fix that. So just because patients do not have access to that test doesn't mean they can't get well. And, And essentially, mitochondria can go slow for, for several possible reasons. They can go slow because you're not putting the fuel in the tank. So again, it's back to DART and it's back to gut function. Mitochondria may be going slow because they are lacking the raw materials. So just like for a car engine to go, you need a compression chamber, you need a fuel pump, you need air filter, you need a catalytic converter and all that sort of stuff. It's the same with mitochondria. There are some nutritional supplements which are absolutely essential for them to work. And the common rate limiting steps would be magnesium, coenzyme Q10, acetyl L-carnitine, vitamin B3, and D-ribose. And in fact, an American cardiologist called Dr. Stephen Sinatra has written a lovely book all about mitochondrial function, um, which goes into great detail of the biochemistry. It's very readable. And he uses this nutritional approach to treat patients who have heart failure. And guess what? He gets much better results than the conventional Yeah, I've read his work too. It is, it is excellent. You just touched on too about this whole nutrient thing. Now, do you find also, because again, I do testing on patients. I check for their magnesium in the red blood cell. I don't always typically check for coenzyme Q, you know, the lab test or glutathione, which I do give to patients who have chronic fatigue. Do you think it's a good idea? Do you find them helpful? You know, to well, measure the all, all data is good data. Right. And you know, if you can do the test, they are always going to be helpful. But the trouble with people with chronic fatigue syndrome is they can't work. And if they can't work, they haven't got any money. And right. therefore, I have to manage their finances right. with equal care so that we can get as many treatments to them as possible. Now, I have done so many of these tests and followed them up as well but I know the sort of doses of supplements that people need. And with those doses, their mitochondrial deficiencies or the raw materials they need should correct reliably well. Right. And the details of which doses and what to take are in the book. Yes, they but are. Again, to be able to absorb those supplements, you've got to get the gut function right. And again, it's back to diet again. If you don't get the paleoketogenic diet in place, if you haven't got a, a gut that absorbs things efficiently, then the body is not going to be able to make use of those supplements. So it's not just a case of taking the supplements and bingo, I'm going to be better. It's got to be part of a bigger package of treatment. That's a great point. I wanted to stop you on that too because I have patients that come in sometimes. I've seen patients from other holistic specialists. They sometimes come in with a garbage pail full of supplements. I mean like $5,000 worth of supplements. And I truly agree with your point that if their gut is not functioning well, they're not going to absorb it. And a lot of times what I do try with patients is like sublingual preparations. I give, I know you're in favor of, but I also do vitamin injections because I can get higher levels very quickly. But the question I want to ask you going back to, because you do write extensively about the fermenting gut, which I think is so important. I've discussed this a little bit on, on some of the other podcasts. 
Um, maybe you could explain again to the listener yeah. also, because I, I really like the way you approached it, because some people are saying, well, well, how do I know I have a fermenting gut? And you mentioned a few simple tests that are inexpensive mm-hmm. that people can do on their own. Maybe you could explain that to the listeners. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's just start off with what a normal human gut should do. Right. The perfect now, person. The human, the human gut is almost unique in the mammal world because it is a digesting, absorbing gut to deal with meat and fat. And the lower gut is also a fermenting gut, which allows us to deal with plant material and fiber. So, for example, I can't feed my dog plant material and beans and and vegetables. She doesn't like that. And equally, I can't feed my horse meat and and fish. They can't deal with that. So we have to have a gut that can deal with all those things. And essentially, the upper gut should be a near-sterile, acidic, digesting gut And that allows us to deal with meat and with fat and with fish and with eggs and with proteins. And then the lower gut, either colon, is a leftover from our days when we were uh, great apes. And that is a fermenting gut. And that allows us to get goodness from vegetables and vegetable fiber. And it performs other useful functions as well. And what, of course, that gut is meant to deal with is a paleo ketogenic diet. A diet that is high in fat, high in meat, and high in fiber. But the trouble with modern diets is they are high in carbohydrates. And, you know, you only have to take a dietary history from somebody for about two minutes and listen and hear that they have, you know, toast for breakfast and they have cereals and they have fruit juice and then they have fruit in the day. And then at lunchtime, they're having a sandwich and a potato and so on. And what they're doing is they're fueling their body with carbohydrates. Now, the problem with those foods, particularly as we age, that high dose of carbohydrate coming into the stomach overwhelms our ability to sterilize and digest that. And what happens then is the microbes move in, the bacteria move in, and the yeast move in, and they start to ferment. So our stomach, instead of being a sterile, acid, digesting gut, becomes a fermenting carbohydrate upper gut. Now, that is real bad news, and it's real bad news for lots of reasons. The first point is if I start fermenting sugars and carbohydrates in my upper gut, what do I produce? Alcohol. Give me a glass of wine at breakfast. Am I going to function in the day? I don't think so. Great point, yes. And not just ethyl alcohol, but propyl alcohol, butyl alcohol. It might ferment to produce delactate. It might ferment to produce hydrogen sulfide, you know, ammonia compounds. And these, all these nasty products of fermentation, literally poisonous. So that's the first problem. The second problem is if you've got a fermenting gut, you know, what happens if you've got yeast and you put some sugar? Then you start to produce gas and you bloat and burping, reflux, bloating, feeling full, these are all symptoms of upper fermenting gut. And the third problem, which I suspect is as pernicious as any, is you get these abnormal carbohydrate fermenting microbes in the upper gut. Now, we are taught at medical school that yes, the gut is full of bacteria, and the lower gut, of course, does have anaerobic bacteria there, and there they stay. But we now know that is not correct. We now know that a small proportion of those evolutionarily incorrect fermenting microbes in the upper gut spill over into the bloodstream. It's called bacterial translocation, but yeast get across as well. Now, if you are starting to spill bacteria and yeast and maybe other microbes into the bloodstream, 
then the immune system looks at that and thinks, cripes, we've got an infection coming here. We've got a septicemia coming here. (laughs) And it starts to be activated. Now, you activate the immune system, and that is potentially very bad news because you switch it on and it can cause terrible damage. Now, yes, we need that immune activation to stop us getting septicemia. But if those bacteria get stuck in joints, you're going to get arthritis. If those bacteria and yeast get stuck in muscles, you're going to get fibromyalgia and muscle pain. If those bacteria get stuck into the brain, we have a fermenting brain. And so many of my patients complain of foggy brain, inability to think clearly. Well, it might be simply because they've they've got a fermenting brain. And we now know there's a huge interplay between the gut microbiome and the brain. Parkinson's disease, I'm sure you're aware, is now generally believed to be a disorder that starts in the gut. Yes, so I just had I just had somebody last week. We talked about that, even with Alzheimer's. It sounds crazy, but the research that they're doing, this Dale Bredesen, it's incredible. Yeah, let me ask you a quick question well, though. Too, I, I see so many candid patients. I have patients that are flying all over the United States to come to New York to see me because they can't find a medical doctor that's willing to do this kind of work with them between diet and rebalancing their gut. But my, I have a question for you, because, you know, again, a lot of people here, especially in the United States, that fermenting foods are good for you, like kimchi, sauerkraut. Again, when you're seeing people in the, you know, this distressed state, obviously, do you tell them to avoid these fermenting foods because they're not good for them at this point, or even kefir? Well, we have to start off from square one and the first thing we have to do is restore normal gut function and I think in the early stages if you've got enough of fermenting gut then taking fermented foods like kefir or kimchi or sauerkraut is initially going to add to that burden in the upper gut so we have to give the upper gut a chance to heal with a paleo ketogenic diet or possibly even a GAPS diet where you are possibly even fasting Different people have to start off at different levels. And if I had somebody with a very severe gut problem, then you may well start off with fasting and then you would add in bone broth and then build in meats and fats and eggs and and fish and then maybe at a later add in other fibrous foods. But everybody's starting point is going to be a little bit different. But the bottom line is you have to do whatever is necessary in order to give the gut a chance to heal. Because if you don't have a healed gut then nothing else is going to fall into place. You can't absorb vitamins. You can't absorb minerals. You're not going to get the goodness from foods. You know, you're still going to be getting problems with bacterial translocation and so on. So, so often it's back to very, very simple naturopathic medical techniques, if you like, to get the whole thing going. And then you build on that. Dr. Mike, let me ask you this though too, because again, I see patients, as I said, sometimes are coming from out of state to New York to see me and they've sometimes been on the diet for a year or two years. They're trying so hard. They're taking all of these herbal supplements. And then when I see them and, you know, I do a certain skin test to check for candida and I'll see a lot of yeast overgrowth. I, I use antifungals like Diflucan. Do you find also that you need that a lot of times to sort of restore the balance? Yes, that is, that is correct. Because as you correctly say, if you have had enough of fermenting gut for some time, yeah, for years, then sometime. those microbes are going to be very comfortably at home and comfortably ensconced in that gut. So the one upper ferment that most people seem to know about is Helicobacter pylori. Right. And it's a very difficult microbe to get rid of. We know that fungal yeast candida problems, they move into a mycelial form and they literally get stuck into the gut. So if you starve them with fasting or with a ketogenic diet, they can survive for a jolly long time before you actually kill them off. So yes, I do use specific antimicrobials in order to get that upper gut clean and tidy. Now, an incredibly useful one is just good old vitamin C. 
Vitamin mm. C contact kills all microbes. And in fact, when I was doing some research for my book, The Infection Game, I found a Polish study where they took 94 patients, I think it was, who tested positive for Helicobacter pylori. Now, they didn't change their diets at all. They gave them five grams of vitamin C a day, which is actually a very modest dose. But they still cured 30% of them of Helicobacter pylori. That's very impressive, right. Mm -hmm. so, so to my mind, that is a stunning result. Now, if they had fasted those patients properly, put them on a ketogenic diet, and given them vitamin C to bowel tolerance, they would have greatly improved that result. So it just illustrates the power of vitamin C to contact kill all microbes. And, you know, people with upfermenting gut, there may be aerobic bacteria there, there may be anaerobic bacteria there, there may be fungi there. But vitamin C to bowel tolerance is a very, very good starting point. And again, it's a simple tool. The potential for harm is zero. And that works fantastically well. You know, for it's many interesting you patients. say this too. I found, you know, I also fortunately have the capability of doing IV vitamins when I need to do it on patients. And we obviously include vitamin C. And I've had patients who have had recurrent urinary tract infections who have been on antibiotics countless times. And then we do an IV vitamin C drip with them. And all of a sudden their urine starts to clear. So, what do you feel like it potentiates the immune system? Is that how you feel like the vitamin C? You think it kills the bacteria itself or it also gets the immune system in gear to clear the infection? Well, no, you're, you're absolutely right, and I have seen that too. And uh, many people who have recurrent urinary tract infections, you have to ask yourself, where are those microbes coming from? And the answer is they're coming from the gut. That's right, 100%. They're spilling over into the yeah. bloodstream um, and getting into the kidneys, and then as they pass out um, through the kidneys, they elicit an inflammatory response. I mean, one of the interesting aspects about these patients is they present with all the symptoms of cystitis and infection, and they go to the doctor, and the doctor tests their urine and says, no, there's no infection there, you know, off you go. Now, what you have to remember is that all urine does have some bacteria in them. That's right. And um, the usual guide is you're allowed up to 10,000 microbes per mil before we diagnose infection. So all bacteria, all urine does have some gut bacteria there. But if it's constantly flowing in at high levels, then the immune system is going to sensitize to that. And you're going to get allergic reactions to these microbes um, in the urinary tract. And that is called interstitial cystitis. And we're seeing epidemics of interstitial cystitis at the moment. Why? High carbohydrate diets, lots of yeast and bacteria pouring into the urine, and you're getting this chronic allergic inflammation, which is part allergy and it's part infection. So the observations you make are absolutely spot on and I would entirely concur with that. Thank you. Now I think vitamin C is helpful to the immune system in two ways. First of all, it contact kills all microbes. There is no microbe that isn't contact killed by vitamin C. Oh, well, Viruses, bacteria, yeast, fantastic okay. tool. The second point is, is that the way in which the immune system fights infection is by firing free radicals at it, firing superoxides at it. And um, those free electrons uh, literally disrupt and distort and damage bacteria. But then you have to get rid of that friendly fire because it has as much potential to, to harm ourselves as it has to harm the enemy. Right. And vitamin C is an excellent free how, radical. Dr. Michael, how do you up those free radicals? How do you also recommend they take the vitamin C? Because some people it bothers their stomach; it's a little bit acidic. Do you do you like it in powder form, pill form? I'm, I'm just curious. You know, when the obviously when yes. the patient doesn't have access well, to an IV. Well, I like to use ascorbic acid because it's the cheapest and it's the best. Okay. And it has an additional effect of acidifying the upper gut. 
Okay. But there are two problems that people can run into. Ascorbicacid is made from fermenting corn, and one or two of my very corn-allergic patients simply react allergically to that. Okay. You can get um, ascorbicacid made from other forms like sago, for example. Mm-hmm. And the other problem is some people, especially if they have yet to get ahead of their fermenting gut, they simply don't tolerate an acidic solution. Right. And, and therefore, one can use the neutral forms of vitamin C like magnesium ascorbate or calcium ascorbate. Works just as well. It's a bit more expensive. Okay. And do you have any preference? Do you ever try like sublingual preparations? Because I tend to like that a lot. Just hard to find or get a high enough dose, you know, to get it into them. Well, like I know you recommend. B12 I don't sublingual. use sublingual vitamin C because its primary effect is going to be in the upper gut. Oh, good point. And it is right. well absorbed from the gut. And one of the interesting things about vitamin C is that the body will take whatever vitamin C it needs for normal biochemistry, whether that's so if people have got um, poor antioxidant status or they've got a high toxic load or they've got a fermenting gut or they've got a systemic infection, then the body will absorb much more vitamin C from the gut and use it. And this is a very useful clinical clue because the way I like people to take vitamin C is to take it to bowel tolerance. So you increase the dose and you increase the dose and you increase the dose until you start to get loose stools or diarrhea and then you reduce it a little bit. And you don't now, find the patients have like you don't find the patients dose of vitamin C is a good clinical measure of that person's fermenting gut, that person's infectious load, that person's antioxidant status, and maybe that person's toxic load. And my experience is that when many, many people they start vitamin C, maybe they have to take 50 or 60 or 80 or 100 grams a day wow. in order to get to bowel tolerance. And that is a measure of how sick they are. Can they tolerate that? As like, they so improve, if, that comes down. If they have like reflux, though, can they tolerate the acidity from the vitamin C in that? I mean, is that... Well, they have reflux because they have a fermenting gut. Okay. And therefore, you would start off that problem by starving out those microbes to get the numbers to as, as low as possible, uh, low as reasonably possible. I mean, as soon as you feed them sugars and carbs, their numbers increase. Right. In fact, bacteria and yeast can double their numbers every 20 minutes. So the numbers rise exponentially. Okay. So you would start, if you had a problem with reflux, you would start off either fasting that patient or maybe doing a GAPS diet and looking at their digestibility until the reflux is gone. When you say fasting, do you mean like the time-restricted eating fasting, or do you mean really complete fasting? just want to clarify that for the listeners. Nobody does. You, can, you can't harm anybody by doing, well, certainly a 24-hour fast and maybe a three-day fast, just clear fluids, and that will really starve out and reduce the numbers of microbes in the upper gut. And then I find that they can tolerate vitamin C um, perfectly well. Interesting. And when you say just fluids, you mean like tea or... Coffee or just water when you say just... Uh, water with... And now, uh, with, and now, obviously, you want some electrolytes in there. I have a mix for my patients that I call sunshine salt, which is a physiological mix of sea salt and then all the other essential minerals. It's got all the calcium, magnesium, selenium, copper, chromium, you know, the whole shebang in there. So this is not, this and, not commercially um, available <laughs> in the sunshine uh, drink. Yeah, and, and, and so that makes up an electrolyte solution. So, yes, they can drink that, and that stops from dehydrating. Um, and have that ad lib to thirst, uh, and that keeps them well until they say as they've reduced their blood sugar, they've starved out these microbes, and then they can start to function normally. Do you like the MCT oil also? I know sometimes in some of these diets where they recommend, like especially keto, to help cut the sugar cravings. Do you think there's any cardiovascular risk, or you think it's generally pretty oh, safe? No I, no, I mean, the point about 
fats and oils is that in nature, there is no such thing as a bad fat. They are all good fats. You know, the perfect fuel for our body would be saturated fats like meat fats, animal fats, coconut oil, um, palm oil. These are all saturated fats and these are the perfect fuel for our body. Now, problems arise with the unsaturated fats, the, the, the monounsaturates like olive oil and the polyunsaturates. Now, if you eat cold, raw oils, no problem at all with any of them. Problems arise when we start to heat those unsaturated fats. Now, in nature, those unsaturated fats are all left-handed fats. You know, they have a kink in them because they're unsaturated. They're not straight um, fats. They are bent. They're curved like a boomerang, if you like. And in nature, all those oils are left-handed oils, so-called cis, cis fats. But if you heat them, i.e. you cook with them, or you hydrogenate them, i.e. you make margarine from them, you will flip some of them into a right-handed boomerang shape. And that's called a trans fat. Now, those trans fats don't fit enzyme systems. And, um, and they're the ones that are so damaging. And they're the ones that give them fats and oils. I suspect they're bad reputation. Yeah. But in nature, all fats, all oils are good. And yes, uh, medium-chain triglycerides are an excellent fuel. And um, for some people who are getting started, then they, they find they're helped by that. But medium-chain triglycerides are what meat fat is. It's lard, you know. So yeah. let's have that good old cheap lard, which anybody can buy and consume. And it's a very inexpensive way of fueling the body. Let me ask you, too, uh, you know, what I find sometimes my do most difficult patients to treat, unfortunately, they think they're doing, I think, the right thing or for personal reasons, they're vegetarian. How do you treat these patients who are vegetarian you know, when they tend to deviate toward a high-carbohydrate diet, if they're not eating meats and stuff like that. What's well, your approach? Well, I mean, I'm not vegetarian and I'm not vegan, and I find it very difficult to <laughs> advise patients on things that I don't do. Right. Now, it is possible to be paleo-ketogenic and be vegetarian, but you are greatly narrowing down your options. Right. And uh, it means you have to eat a lot of coconut oil, a lot of palm oil, um, in order to get the, um, um, the medium-chain fatty acids, and you... You can't fuel the body with pulses, with grains, with fruit, on which our vegetarians rely heavily for their fuel. So you source. won't let them have and like quinoa, farro, any of these type of even like you know more exotic grains. High, those are high carbohydrate um, seeds. The only seed that really passes muster is linseed or flaxseed, which is two percent carbohydrate. And in my book, The Paleo Ketogenic Cookbook, there's a jolly good recipe there for um, linseed bread, which really you know, looks like, cuts like a, a small hovis or a small you know, brown loaf. So that's a, a, a very great asset. Um, because it's high is that without fiber. yeast? Is the um, linseed without yeast also? Is it like sort of like a flat kind of bread or it does have yeast in it? No, no, it doesn't have any yeast in there for it's obvious just baking reasons. Soda? No, the yeah. only ingredients are flaxseed, salt and water. Now, believe you me, I got up early every morning for six months and it played and played and experimented and <laughs> until I, I, I got it right. Wow. And um, I can now make a very acceptable loaf in five minutes with just those three ingredients, water, salt, and flaxseed. I, I have to admit, my daughter told me that it smelt a bit fishy, so now I put some cumin seeds in there, which, which, which gives it a slightly better flavour. Yeah, the flaxseed but, sometimes um, have that There's a video of, of me yeah. on YouTube in uh. my kitchen um, with my dog in the bottom right to can corn, if you look closely, um, making the bread, and it really is very simple to do, and oh. anybody can do it. And my patients will be happy. If, if you're they doing all... a paleo-ketogenic diet, if you've got a good bread, 
then that makes the whole thing it so does. much easier. Yeah, people really love that. I want to move on to something else too, which is really important, going back to when you talked about the car analogy. And I'm going to get a little specific on this about the gearbox, the adrenals, and adrenal fatigue testing. Because again, you know, I don't know about in Britain, but the United States, <laughs> so many of the endocrinologists who are specialized in hormones do not believe in adrenal fatigue. I'm not sure why, mm-hmm. because we know mm-hmm. the thyroid can be underactive or fail. Why can't mm-hmm. the adrenals? So maybe if you can explain to the listeners too, the tests that you like, you know, whether it's from the saliva or the blood. And I know you mentioned in your book about measuring cortisol and DHEA. Could you explain a little bit, you know, for the listeners? Or, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, uh, the thyroid and the, and the adrenals make up the last two bits of the car. So to control your car engine, you need a thyroid accelerator pedal and you need an adrenal gearbox. And the adrenal gearbox allows us to move up a gear in order to deal with extra stress. Now, we can't go in overdrive, you know, all day and and all night for obvious reasons because we would exhaust. But the adrenal gland allows us to move up a gear in order to deal with demand. Now, adrenal fatigue is a fantastically common problem. The trouble with the endocrinologists is they only recognize the extremes. They recognize Cushing syndrome, when there's a maybe adrenal tumor or adrenal overactivity and you're producing vast amounts of cortisol, they recognize that and they treat it very well. They also recognize Addison's disease, which is the other end of the spectrum. And that is when the adrenal glands have been completely wiped out. It's on the floor. And of course, that's a, um, a life President, President John Kennedy had that. Yeah, he was, almost died from that. Yeah. But between those two, there is this huge gray area that physicians like you and myself recognize as adrenal fatigue. And the adrenal glands have been under constant stress. They're constantly being uh, stimulated to pour out more adrenaline, more cortisol in order to function. And they eventually, they just fatigue. Now, this was very well established in, I think it was the 1940s, by um, a Canadian uh, researcher called Hans Selye. And he wrote a book called The Stress of Life. And I'll just give you an example of some of the work he did. Um, He was using rats and he was stressing them in unpleasant ways that you and I don't want to think about. But what he did, what he found is when he stressed those rats, they were able to increase their energy output and respond to that stress, whatever it was, cold or lack of food or electrical shocks or whatever, and function at a very um, good level. And then if he stopped stressing them, then those rats recovered. And what he found is that the adrenal gland enlarged in response to that stress And then when the stress went away, the adrenal glands shrank back down again. And then he did a nasty experiment where he stressed those rats unremittingly. And he never gave them a rest. And they functioned quite well, and they functioned quite well, and they functioned quite well, and then they dropped dead. And when when he looked at them, the adrenal glands had just shrunk away. Now, what I'm seeing is people who are being stressed unremittingly. Now, Many people think stress is, oh, it's financial stress, it's work stress, it's emotional stress. But actually, the biggest stress I see is dietary stress. Because if you are fueling your body with carbohydrates and sugars, your blood sugar is up and down and up and down and up and down. It's a little bit like having a car where you pour petrol in and then you starve the car. And then you pour petrol in and you starve the car. It just doesn't like it. And um, as the blood sugars go up, the body produces insulin because sugar is very damaging. That brings the blood sugar down. And as the blood sugar comes down, the brain panics. It thinks it's running out of fuel and it pours out the stress hormone, which is adrenaline. So if people are running their bodies on sugars and carbohydrates, you know, bread, 
toast, fruit, sweet drinks, and so on. Their blood sugars are going up, and every time they come down, they spike adrenaline. So they're spiking adrenaline throughout the day. It's like giving somebody a terrible shock, you know, several times a day. And the adrenal gland copes, and it copes, and it copes, and eventually it can't do it anymore. It just packs up. You know, I give the example to patients sometimes, too, is that I say it's like a lemon. I always picture the adrenal gland like a lemon. It's like you keep on squeezing and squeezing and squeezing until eventually it's just pulp. (laughs) And... um, I, I like that. Analogy. And yes, adrenal fatigue is very common. And again, in parallel with that adrenal fatigue, there's a, often a thyroid problems. And the thyroid gland is the accelerator pedal of the car. Now, in these days, I almost invariably treat those two conditions in parallel. You do? Okay. Now, the, this does, again, it makes for much more simple medicine because all the time I'm trying to find techniques that are cheap inexpensive and people can do it themselves and I describe these techniques in my books. Now what the thyroid accelerator pedal and the adrenal gearbox does is they control how fast the mitochondria go and how fast the mitochondria go is reflected by our core temperature. So if our mitochondria are going fast and guess what you know if I decide to go out you know jogging for a a couple of miles all my muscles generate heat and I'm going to warm up. And that is all, say, controlled by you know, thyroid and adrenal function. So measuring core temperature is a very good way of tracking your thyroid and adrenal health. And what I like my patients to do is take their temperature, their core temperature, several times throughout the day. And um, their average temperature is a reflection of thyroid function. And the wobbles, the degree to which it fluctuates, is a measure of adrenal function. Now, remember, this is only going to work if that patient is doing a paleoketogenic diet and they have addressed the mitochondrial dysfunction. So don't start off with this. It's not going to be a Got good it. reflection good of what adrenals yeah, and what the thyroid do. Yeah. This test is only relevant at the point at which you've done all the other stuff as well. Do you, let me ask you this too, because I, mean, I know, you, I, I think it is a great way of testing, but let's say also just for medically, we're checking and let's say we do the adrenal saliva test, which you talk about in your book, and we're watching the curve. Do you, you know, or if you measure some serum morning cortisol levels or aldosterone levels, and of course, you know, thyroid like TSH, will you start these patients on cortisol itself? I know you like, you talk about pregnenolone, which I, I had really never been familiar that much with before to try to get the hormones on the right pathway. Could you explain that a little bit or also pure T3, you know, these different things okay. that patients don't normally get? Okay. Well, the, these days, again, I'm trying to make my medicine as simple and as logical as possible. Okay. And so actually these days I tend to use glandulars. And the joy of using glandulars is that you don't need a prescription to be able to use them. And I use natural desiccated thyroid, which people can access online if necessary. And I use natural adrenal cortisol extract, um, something like the Swanson's or the Adrenavive preparations are excellent. The point being is that those hormones are well absorbed from the gut. Again, if you've not got a fermenting gut, um, anybody can access them. And they are the most physiological. So they are the closest to nature, and they have the raw um, hormones that help to su- support the, the body's adrenal gland. I mean, the point being here is that the adrenal gland hasn't failed completely. It still has some function. And if you base load with some of these glandulars, then it means the adrenal gland doesn't have to work quite so hard, and, and the gland itself can do the fine-tuning. So I tend to use adrenal glandulars to treat people who have low cortisol or low DHEA. So somebody or is very... Look, and well, I tend to use... 
thyroid glandules if they've got low levels of T4 or T3 or whatever. Suppose they're really severe. I mean, I'm sure you've seen patients like this, like I have. I've had doctors and nurses, they couldn't get out of bed. I mean, you know, for like sometimes weeks at a time. Will you, though, go to more prescription where you know the dosing can hopefully is, you know, again, you have a little better idea or still would you go with the glandulars? Well, it doesn't matter where people are on the energy curve. The starting point is always the same. And so, you know, my treatment of, you know, a marathon runner would be the same as my treatment of somebody who'd been in bed for the last 20 years. Really? Why? I, I, I find that confusing. Why, why? I mean, again, the person who's doing it, and I have a couple of patients like this too. I mean, it's, it's shocking. They're telling me they're running 10 miles a day, but they feel horrible. And I'm looking, but you're running 10 miles a day. So how could they be on the same point? Ooh, on the, the diet is the same. The attention to gut function is the same. Uh-huh. The basic package of supplements to support mitochondria are the same. Okay. The detox regimes to look for things that might be blocking mitochondria are the same. Um, the tests for thyroid and adrenal dysfunction are the same. So the, the, it, say we, we are all somewhere on that energy curve. Right. And my job is to move that person up that energy curve, whether they're bed-bound or whether they're a top athlete. Okay. The underlying principles are exactly the same. What about the pregnenolone? Because you mentioned in your book, do you still like to use that, though? To... I tend these days to use adrenal glandulars really? because they're okay. more physiological. Okay. Now, what's in the adrenal gland? Well, all these hormones. You know, if you take dried adrenal glands... Where is that adrenal gland coming from? Is that coming from an animal? Is that coming from an animal or is that from a bioidentical yes. source? Okay. Yes. Yeah, they, they, are, they come from, um, well, I tend to use uh, New Zealand organic BSE-free uh, cattle, but in America you also have similar okay. animals that with, with, okay. so it's a high-quality product. Interesting. Okay. Uh, I think that's a really good point. Uh, one last thing I want to move on to about exercise and okay, I know we've been talking about the marathon runner and the person who's laying in bed. But, you know, again, some people are frightened. I and mean, they've been, you know, I typically hear this story, you know, a patient, and they're lucky if one or two days a week they can get out and do some errands. How, you know, yeah. if you get the person on the diet and you're doing all the things that you talk about, you know, in your car analogy, their gut getting it well, having them taking the nutrients and the vitamins, what do you recommend to them how to get their confidence back to start exercising? Okay. Well, the first point to make is that when you start doing these regimes, you get what I call DDD reactions. You get diet reactions, detox reactions, and die-off reactions. It's a bumpy ride Mm. because as you do the diet, as I call it, you have to go through the metabolic hinterland, which is uh, not not much fun. It takes two weeks to keto adapt. You detox, you start to mobilize toxins, and that gives you an acute poisoning. And if you get fermenting gut or infections, you get die-off or Herxheimer-like reactions. So it's always going to be a bumpy ride. And I always say to my patients, you will be made worse. See, this is a good sign. Okay. So that's the first thing. Now, the key with exercise is, yes, we all know exercise is good. But these people have got a very small energy bucket. And if they use all that energy on exercise, then they don't have energy just for life, just for preparing a meal, maybe, or being able to use their brain and and, and, and read a book or watching something on the television. So they have to make these choices in the early stages, and those choices can be very difficult. But you you can only work that out by experience. So I ask people to go very gently and listen to their bodies. And so long as they don't pay for it the next day, then it's okay to exercise. And to increase, I mean, whether it's walking 20 minutes a day, doing some maybe some stretching, just to, I think it's a combination of getting their, their mental confidence along with their actual muscle confidence. 
Well, that's, that's, that's a secondary issue that comes down the line. And, you know, I say to people, you know, I really don't want you exercising until we are absolutely sure that we have covered all these bases. The diet, the mitochondria, the thyroid, the adrenals, the sleep, the detox regimes, all that sort of stuff. Because the body actually needs energy for healing and repair. You know, it needs energy to help to detox. It needs energy to fight infections. And you don't want them just exercising for the sake of exercise. That can be very counterproductive. Yeah, that's a great point. Gosh, I have to tell you, you know, as we're concluding this podcast, that first of all, Dr. Mile, you speak as well as you write. And I strongly recommend any of the listeners to get her books. You know, I have in front of me the Chronic Fatigue Syndrome and Myalgic Encephalitis. I have at home your book on diabetes and sustainable medicine. They're all terrifically written. The way she explained it on this podcast is the way she writes. So it's, it's very interesting. It has a touch of British humor in there. So I, I loved it. <laughs> and I appreciate that you took the time to do the podcast. I think this was one of the most informative ones that I've done practically for patients so they could get immediate benefit and work with their doctor to get better. And finally, Dr. Myhill, you know, I'm a huge tennis fan and I hope one day, it's still my dream to get to Wimbledon. And if I get there next summer, I promise to look you up and, and we'll have some tea and some keto snacks. How's that sound? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your time today. This was fantastic. I hope to speak to you again in the future. I think you have so much to offer the listeners. My, my pleasure, Dean. Thank you okay. for inviting me. You're, You're welcome. all the right questions. Thanks. I, no, I, did my, I did my homework. I wanted to make sure. But really, it was like kind of my dream to speak with you. So check off another one <laughs> off the bucket. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Thank Bye. you. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.